You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to Lunchtime Movie Review. I'm Patrick, filling in for Matt again, who's out this week. We hope he gets better soon. Uh, this week, we're going to be reviewing 1989's Batman. Uh, with me this week is... Joker. I'm Jay. And I'm Matthew. Uh, well, I was going to introduce you. Uh, we have a new uh, reviewer this week. We have inter- intern Matthew. We have an intern now. Good to be here. Yeah. Where's my coffee? You're going to have to get your own coffee. <laughs> He's not a very good intern. No, he's not. He's failing. He won't be here next week. He'll be interning someplace else. Before we get to this week's film, first, a word from our sponsor. (laughs) This week's podcast is brought to you by the Tea Party. The Tea Party endorses Harvey Dent as district attorney of Manhattan, uh, or Gotham. The Tea Party endorses Harvey Dent because he has proven that he can change from a black person into a white person. And the Tea Party supports that sort of thing. Vote for Harvey Dent. All right, Batman. Vicki Vale. Bruce Wayne. And what do you do for a living? Lieutenant, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? Nice outfit. The character of Batman is a creation of pre-World War II America. Conceived in 1939, Batman was originally a pulp hero who cared little for killing or maiming those he went up against. However, the character evolved over time, taking on the nobler attributes that many comic fans have come to expect from the character today. During this metamorphosis, the character morphed into a costumed detective, to a campy, cartoonish version to match the Adam West television show, and ultimately a full-blown superhero with the lifestyle to match. Regardless of the constant reinvention, comic sales continued to drop for the Batman character in the 1970s and early 1980s, and by 1985, circulation was at an all-time low. Then in 1986, Frank Miller reinvented the character into a much darker, more intense Cape Crusader in his seminal works The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One. This Batman was extremely dark and very grim. Hell, he didn't even shave on a daily basis like that puss Superman. He was bound and determined to root out injustice wherever it may be. With this as their template, Warner Brothers decided to launch Batman onto the big screen. Looking for a director that could properly convey this modern-day retelling of the Dark Knight, Warner Brothers quickly settled on the one man that could accomplish this task. Martin Scorsese? George Lucas? No. Well, obviously, they chose the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Tim Burton. Warner felt that only Burton's vision could shed the campy perception of Batman that was forever stuck in the general public's view of the hero due to the hit 1960s television show and replace it with an awful late 1980s campy version instead. Burton set out to cast his vision of the perfect Dark Knight, the one actor who could epitomize the brooding, reluctant, athletic superhero. Of course, that actor was Mr. Mom himself, Michael Keaton. Apparently, Johnny Depp was busy that week. Our film begins on the streets of Gotham, grim and dirty and filled with crime. You can almost smell the poverty coming off the screen. I imagine it smells like a blend of nursing home and the sleeping bag of a carny. The criminal underworld is a flutter with rumors of the bat killing criminals in the city. Two criminals who just successfully robbed a family that had stumbled into the wrong alley encounter the bat on a rooftop. He beats them both up after taking one gunshot to the chest. He pronounces that he will not kill them, but he wants them to send a message for him. He is Batman. Apparently, Batman's not into the whole brevity thing. I'm Batman. The film then jumps to the lead character of the film, Jack Napier, played by the poor man's Christian Slater, Jack Nicholson. Napier is the right-hand man to the lead criminal mafia boss in Gotham, Carl Curly Grissom. Unfortunately, the right hand has been placed where it doesn't belong recently, and Grissom has caught onto the scent that Napier has been sneaking around with Grissom's girl. Grissom sets Jack up in hopes that he will get pinched. Batman beats the police to the punch, and during the struggle, accidentally drops Jack into a vat of Nickelodeon slime, forever scarring Jack physically and emotionally, but apparently not financially since Nicholson reportedly walked away with $60 million for doing this role. Wow. 
Jack is now the Joker. In a very hostile takeover, Joker kills Grissom and takes over his organization. The Clown Prince of Crime starts his crime spree, which is essentially to make people into him, but it has the nasty side effect of causing death. Did we not mention the Nickelodeon slime scarred him mentally too? Batman foils one of the Joker's plans and then interrupts the Joker while he is out to dinner with Vicki Vale, the throwaway female character in the film, masterfully depicted by Kim Basinger, who is best known as the mother of a rude, thoughtless little pig. <laughs> I'm sure that... According to Mr. Baldwin. <laughs> yeah, not our opinion. That is her father's opinion. So. <laughs> he, father knows best. She will forever be known as a rude, thoughtless little pig. That's, no matter what she does. She can cure cancer, but she's a rude, thoughtless little pig. So <laughs> Soon, Bruce Wayne stumbles upon the fact that Jack Napier is the killer of his parents, erasing nearly 50 years of mythology for the sake of giving some motivation to Batman to take on the Joker. The film culminates with the Joker attempting to gas the citizens of Gotham with giant balloons. Why? Who gives a f*** their balloons? And I guess death by a giant baby balloon is pretty funny to the Joker. Batman interrupts his plans by stealing his balloons with his Batwing, a supersonic, multitasking, crime-fighting plane that can be shot down with one hit from a pistol. The Joker and the Batman battle for Vicki Vale's affections atop the Gotham Cathedral, a church that appears to be made out of nothing but stairs and deteriorating brick. Joker survives Batman's initial attack, which leads to Batman and Vale hanging from the edge of the building. The Joker attempts to make his escape via a helicopter, but Batman essentially ties him to the building. Ultimately, our protagonist falls to his death due to the credibility of the plot being stretched too far, and probably because the studio couldn't afford to bring back Joker for the sequel. Batman and Vale also fall, but are saved by one of Batman's many toys. In the end, the police forgive Batman for all the people he has killed throughout the film, because he has given them a light that shines a bat on the clouds. That is Batman. I thought the actor who played uh, Joker died of an overdose. Or am I mixing up my No, I think you've got your different Batman. I think that was Cesar Romero. (laughs) Cesar Romero. So, uh, Batman, when did this one come out, Greg? Uh, June 23rd of 1989. And it came out the same week as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Ooh, major competition Uh, that week. Yeah. Young Matthew remembers that film. I, I remember it well. <laughs> or do you just remember the Disney ride that was there forever? <laughs> didn't that replace? Don't remember that at all. Didn't that replace Captain EO? Yeah, it was Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Yeah, I, I, if I recall. <laughs> yeah, so. so I do remember that. So June was a June of nineteen eighty nine. These are the movies that came out that that month: uh, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, but not really. <laughs> Ghostbusters two. Which the, the final frontier is the final frontier. <laughs> if Bill Murray has anything to say about it, Dead Poet Society, Ugh. The Karate Kid, Part Three, Great Balls of Fire, and Do the Right Thing. Uh, what did this gross? Over two hundred and fifty-one million dollars. It was the highest-grossing film of nineteen eighty-nine, and its budget was about thirty-five million. So it was a extremely profitable movie. What did it beat out that year? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade uh, by about $54 million, and Lethal Weapon 2, as well as Look Who's Talking. Lethal Weapon 2 was the th- number three film that year? I believe so, yeah. Oh, wow. And Look Who's Talking is number four. Wow. Completely forgot about Look Who's Talking. Slow talking yeah. baby. It's <laughs> really funny stuff when you get a baby and give them an adult voice. Yeah. Come hey, on. Talking sh- sperm. What's sh- a ton of money for Bruce Willis, though. I think he took a percentage of that. Yeah. So. It was the right year to take a percentage in a mediocre movie, apparently. <laughs> apparently. No kidding. Jack Nicholson. Well, let's start talking about this film. We could start with Jack Nicholson being cast in this role. I made a joke of it in the, the, the summary, but that seems to be the problem in a lot of the Batman films, but especially in this one, is the lead character is the villain, not really the hero. Oh, that's definitely true. And after, uh, what was it, $60 million? $60 million that he walked away with? $60 million, apparently. Wow. In 1989, that's crazy. He could have bought China. I mean, he, he was getting a piece <laughs> of the toys and a piece. I mean, he was getting a piece of everything, I think, that came out of that. So yeah. That, that all adds up. And they marketed the heck out of that movie towards uh, young kids and everything. But yeah, for $60 million, then, he is going to be the lead. Well, I mean, I guess you... The principal character. But even if you cast... I mean, even at this time... Nicholson is Nicholson, but Nicholson is not a huge box office draw at this point in time. In fact, yeah, he, the, the films he just Most recently, done. The Witches of Eastwick, Broadcast News, which he had a, a small part in, and Ironweed, which was with Meryl Streep, but nobody saw. 
Yeah. They played two bums and nobody saw it. And then Heartburn. With Meryl Streep. Also with Meryl Streep. <laughs> two huge box office hits there, I'm sure. But I'm setting a pattern here. <laughs> well, but yeah, so he's not a huge box office draw, but yet he was a coup for this film to get over Robin Williams or William Defoe, and I can't remember who the third person was that they, they, that they considered, but Burton wanted Nicholson. Yeah, and, you know, he had two Oscars by that point, and they got him for his eyebrows. No, but it, I mean, I guess at the time, he's, he's a two-time Academy Award winner. He's a coup for this. But you still, the movie's called Batman, not Joker. And that you, you'd spend this time, you, you flesh out the Joker character, but you don't really flesh out Batman. No, I mean, it was really a movie about the Joker. And, and Batman didn't seem fleshed out at all. I mean, they try to get a little bit into the trauma, but a lot of it's just, there's this guy, he has money, he fights crime. And and really, the Joker is the is the, the centerpiece of this movie. I well, I think at that point, everyone knows the origin story of Batman. Um, no one really knows, short of reading the comic books, really would know the origin story of the Joker. So maybe that's the way they were taking it. Yeah, but they said fuck the origin story. The, Batman's killed by Joe Chill in the origin story. In this, they make it the Joker. Well, they modified. Okay, they modified it slightly. I mean, he was still saw his parents get murdered. That's what everyone knows, and that's what everyone takes away from the Batman origin story. They modified it slightly for more motivation uh, for the Batman to go after the Joker. But um, no one really, no one really understands the Joker, and no one really, um, really knows the origin story of the Joker, short of knowing and really memorizing all the comic books. But, but in this movie, nobody knows Bruce Wayne, the multi-millionaire playboy that is apparently reclusive so yeah. the the two hottest reporters who are assigned to the batman story know nothing about she's him. a photographer not a reporter well i know but yeah robert wool and kim basinger and they know nothing about bruce wayne they know nothing about batman somehow bruce wayne is able to just slip through who is this person that owns the city of gotham we know nothing about him i mean i agree that you have an origin story you can alter it slightly but it seems like a dramatic change that you didn't need to do you could uh, the fact that you try to give some motivation to bruce wayne to go after the joker he's going after bad guys anyways but even before this why does it why did you need to make that addition other than just for the sake of i want to make it yeah. stamp it as my own i agree tim burton is a shitty storyteller yeah. i agree with you it, it it does cheapen batman and bruce wayne's um, motivations for fighting crime to see like oh my god the joker is the one who burned my family, so I'm, you know, I'm going after him now. I think it does cheapen, I, d I think it does cheapen the character. Well, I think I think it tries to give emotional response or to the character of Batman, but you don't see it from Michael Keaton. I, I Michael Keaton got a lot of claim for how he played this role at the time, but I never really liked him as Batman. I mean, I I thought he was like the wall. I mean, he's just there. He did. He's filling the costume, but he doesn't do anything. Or was I alone on that? <laughs> no, I no. agree with you. Yeah. But when you're going up against Jack Nicholson, I mean, he just steals the movie. I think we can all agree that he is the movie. Yeah, but he's awful, too. He's terrible. Over the top. I thought over the top was a well, one. Yeah, but but he also plays only one note, and that is the wry eyebrow act in Jack Nicholson, which is pretty much all Jack Nicholson can do anyway, what, with no range at all. What, wasn't wasn't Batman after the Joker before he found out he killed his parents? Though he didn't find out he killed his parents until the scene in. Um, Have you ever danced with the devil in the apartment. apartment? No, no, I agree with you, but that also goes further to my point. He's already after right. this guy. Why do you have to try to give it? Oh, I wasn't stopping before, but now I really want to stop it. Right. Except for at the end of the film when he confronts him about, which essentially is, I'm telling you who I am because you killed my parents. Which the Joker acknowledges, by right. the way. In the I film. was a kid when I killed your parents. What is that? So, oh, well, by the way, oh, you're Bruce Wayne. Oh, uh, I'm Jack. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> um, sorry about that. I just wanted some money that day. The so. whole secret I did anything just kind of flies out the window with um, Alfred saying, hey, why don't you come out to the bat, uh, the bat Cave and, to Vicky, Vicky, what Vicky Vale. Yeah, Vicky Vale. And Batman introducing himself as Bruce Wayne in the final fight scene. It's like, do you not care? Who knows? Your secret identity? Everybody knows his secret identity. But, it, no, I agree with you. It just seems to make no sense whatsoever. And at the end of the film, one of the things that always bothered me about this film, although doing the research for it, it was interesting to find out that Batman was a pulp hero and killed and maimed people when he was originally created, is that 
the Batman I grew up with was, you know, caught criminals and brought them to justice. And this film, Batman kills a whole bunch of fucking people everywhere. I mean, he, he says, I'm going to kill you to the Joker, which he ultimately does kill. But the scene that really bothered me was the whole warehouse scene where he drives the car in and drops a bomb and blows up an entire warehouse, killing, you know, probably dozens, if not, you know, a hundred people more in the building. And, and it, this is a heroic character that at the end of the film, the police embrace. It just it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Where's Adam West when you need him? <laughs> Off doing the bat tootsie. <laughs> Oh, I want to talk about that scene a bit because that scene just seemed like it was just inserted just for the sake of having a cool explosion in the summer blockbuster. It it didn't advance the plot. It didn't advance any character development. It was just a completely throwaway scene, and it just wanted to have the cool scene of the Batmobile driving down through the abandoned factory with explosions all over it. Which I can still remember seeing as a kid. As like a seven-year-old kid, I yeah. can remember that scene of the Batmobile in like Taco Bell commercials. I mean, everywhere was uh, this, the Batmobile driving away from this flaming building, and it, it fits in the plot nowhere. nowhere. He's known that factory was there poisoning people for however long, but now it's time to it's time to take care of some business. Apparently, plus he hurt Gotham's economy by blowing up that factory. <laughs> what would they, and what's this going to do to the festival? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you had some criticism about the festival itself. Yeah, what city needs a you, you, your your city is decaying. Bricks are falling off bricks. And what is your what is your best your last best hope? We're gonna we're gonna float some some balloons down Main Street. You don't hope people look at them long enough that they'll just put up a shop while they're there. Thanks. And the, the Joker was the only one who brought a balloon. I mean, the 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 festival was only slightly worse with the Joker than it would have been without him. You know? Yeah. What was going on in the world? Like maybe in China. Oh, <laughs> Why didn't you keep me on track? Now I'm really playing mad. So. Well, what's going on in the world in June of 1989? Uh, the Tiananmen Square uprising is uh, going on. Um, on June 3rd, Nolan Ryan pitched his second one-hitter. The show Doctor Doctor debuted on a, CBS. One-hitter makes the news. <laughs> second one-hitter? Didn't he throw, like, five no-hitters? He no threw hitters? seven no-hitters, yeah. yeah somebody... We're talking June 1989. <laughs> Unless you just want me to leave it out there. Tiananmen Square. I, I, I think he had something like 12 yeah. one-hitters, too. Did somebody bowl a 280 that month? <laughs> yeah. You know? Okay, fine. Tiananmen Square. Okay, I'm, I'm glad sorry. we talked about the news. We so didn't need to wh- shit all over your news. Come on, finish the news. Uh, the Detroit Pistons uh, swept the L.A. Lakers to win the NBA championship. I remember that. And uh, as for music, the number one album uh, was Raw and Crooked by Fine Young Cannibals. And the number one oh. songs. <laughs> How do you really feel? <laughs> we're talking about 80s music. But uh, number one songs were uh, Richard Marks' Satisfied. Which and none of us can seem to remember what that song is. Millie Vanilli's Baby Got to My Number. Which is a song that we can't get out of our heads. Thank God I don't know it. Oh, you will after this podcast comes out. So. Damn. Well, we can understand why Goths graduated to grunge in about a year from this point. I mean, <laughs> that music right there. Oh, my goodness. Actually, in uh, 1989, Nirvana recorded their first album, Bleach. Bleach right. Bleach. But nobody knew about it no. outside yeah. of Seattle. True. Right. But at least they recorded it. Yeah. Going to music around this time, there was a, two soundtracks to this album. Or this film, there was the Prince soundtrack, and then there was the Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman, you know, orchestration soundtrack. And the actual Prince soundtrack has a number one single off this from this film, which is "Bat Dance," which is probably one of the worst songs I've ever heard in my life. Which actually number one's on July 30th, about a month after this comes out. Well, which do you hate more, the music from Batman or the one from Last Dragon? You mean as far as the the songs? You're yeah. not talking about Elfman's score. No, 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 no. no. I just like the, Danny Elfman's score in this a lot. But, yeah, yeah, it works, and it actually plays off yeah, of the but, Batman. But Prince, you're series. talking about Prince, right? Yeah, the oh. Prince's song. Yeah, terrible. Well, I had the Batman album, and there's some good songs on it. None of them are in the movie. <laughs> 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 yeah. which, which makes perfect sense. You don't put those in there. Uh, even Bat Dance is not in the movie. It's just on the, the soundtrack, and it, it's an utterly horrid, thrown-together pop mix it's not even a song it's just a, a lot of film clips you know put the music did he incorporate any two scene <laughs> <laughs> or is it is it more of a modern bat dance it's it's more of a modern bat dance see he wears an outfit and the video which will probably be on our website soon half of it is joker and half of it is batman so the, the duality that is prince which 
you know. Or maybe it's diluting to Two Face coming in soon. I was gonna say they picked that up for a later and, and much worse movie. <laughs> That's true. So, but the fact that they have Prince, did it add anything to this film that you had to go get Prince to write? An album of songs? No, but that's part of the whole marketing campaign, right? Along with Taco Bell and promotion, right? Yeah, get Prince. I mean, I'm just glad they stopped short of like the Joker eating a burrito on his float, you know, with the Taco <laughs> yeah, Bell. Yeah, this is clearly this is, showing. This is a little before the heyday of product placement. Yeah. I mean, it, it had been going on for a little bit, but just not like it is now. But yeah, you're right; it would be overdone. Yeah. Batman stops for a Heineken real quick. <laughs> And Time Warner is uh, Warner Brothers has exploded into Time Warner. They're even more gargantuan than they were 25 years ago. So yeah, well, they did have place. a nice time placement in there. Right. Vicky, Vicky Vale's time. Oh, right. yeah. oh, that's true. I didn't even think of that. But yeah, that's right. But was it necessary? I mean, did it add anything to the film? No. Was it a distraction? Like, I think it was a distraction. Yeah, if anything. Oh yeah, it was a huge distraction when um, the Joker and his henchmen were coming into the uh, um, the museum. It just had like a just smacked of we're gonna just have an impromptu music video, and we got Joker and his henchmen why, why, just yeah, dancing they, and pick, uh, before use, they deface priceless artwork. Yeah, right. with fluorescent paint, which you couldn't get more late eighties, early nineties than fluorescent paint. It just didn't work. It was very nineteen eighties, late nineteen eighties camp. You're replacing it. You're trying to. Retool and reboot Batman from 1960s camp with 1980s camp. It just didn't, doesn't work. It worked great back then, but it just doesn't work now. Well, and I don't know if they're... And that's the thing. It, it felt like a waste of three minutes of my life. <laughs> and, and I don't know if... <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. That's the fil- yeah, the film was about two hours. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, let's clarify that. We didn't have to make it any worse than it had to be. <laughs> but it, it was almost like a, a horrible attempt at, I don't know, portraying the Joker's madness. Because he just killed about 50 people. Yeah, you we know, know he's he's so uh, uh, the, the burned face. So why do we need to spend three minutes saying, "Oh, this guy's nuts"? He'll, you know, tip over a statue. You know, <laughs> who, who cares? There's no end to what this man will yeah. do. He dumped that statue on the ground. Mother's but he liked one children. random painting for some whatever reason. Well, it was macabre. So uh. it, it was it was already you know, defaced. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an artic. Ah, see, we everyone brings something new to the show. So. And, Greg, you started talking about the Danny Elfman score. Danny Elfman has a very, I don't know, unique sound. Distinctive. Yeah. And this was kind of what... He'd done some scores before this. He'd done Beetlejuice that I can recall. He may have been involved with Pee-wee's Big Big Yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But this is kind of puts him out there that he, after this, I think, does other films besides... And this is before The Simpsons, right? That's around the same time. Around the same time. Since it started around probably, 89. Yeah. So, and, know, it, and it, I like the score. I think it, it, it works. And it's varied depending well, on the mood of, of, you know, the, of what's going on the mo- in the movie. Well, when you hear that music now, the I guess the Denny Elfman theme music, you think Batman because it's reused later on for the animated uh, Batman. Anim- kind of establishes himself as, you know, a, a major composer. And he eventually branches out and doesn't just do Tim Burton films, although I think he does every Tim Burton film. Seems like it, yeah. yeah. So, what about, we haven't talked about the lead actor yet, but what about Michael Keaton himself? I mean, what was your view on Keaton playing Batman? Interesting choice. I I don't... That's inadju- an adjective I would use. Yeah, I, I <laughs> Not mean... Not the one I would... It's, it's certainly... He, he doesn't really fit the image of Bruce Wayne, what you would think the millionaire, you know, multi-millionaire playboy would look like or, or act. He's got the eyebrow thing going, though, so maybe that was it. The battle of the eyebrows between him and Jack Nicholson. Yeah, but you can't see his eyebrows and when cer- he's in the Batman cowl. And certainly as as Batman, I it, there's no way. I mean, you could probably go through 100 actors that were pretty popular at the time. That well, would Pat- be a better choice. Well, I think the best damage control for that casting was just how, I think, overall, how Batman kind of just disappeared in this movie at times you know if, yeah. if this was a guy who really had to take over this movie it would have been an absolute unmitigated disaster but the fact that well yeah and, was and, so and, little developed you know right. it, and in case in point is when he has that that confrontation with the joker where he ends up getting shot with the little you know tin platter that he's using as a as a vest bulletproof vest type thing but what what is what is he doing what does he seek to accomplish in that in that scene i mean that's a horribly 
misconstrued scene, and then we kind of see this guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Vicky Vale is being threatened, and and I can't remember. Have they banged at this point? And the, have they had their first date, Bruce Wayne and, and she, or is this? Yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah, yeah. No, she slept with him very early yeah. on, first date. And so ever. he's just he's keeping his distance, and like, yeah, it's you. <laughs> Uh, but I'll I'll be here by the door, you know. I, <laughs> weird. So, yeah, he got his. So yeah. Um, yeah. Bringing up other actors that were considered, um, I'll bring up the funny ones mainly. Uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Well, his take on Starman I think equals Michael Keaton's um, take on uh, Batman in this. I mean, the Batman look, abides. Yeah. I think he'd be a better Bruce Wayne, but. Man, than you, Michael you, Keaton. You can call me the bad if you're in the whole brevity <laughs> thing, you know. <laughs> so. El Batterino. Yeah. So, whatever, man. Um, Emilio Estevez, which he was kind of a hot property at the time. I don't think he would have been any. any too better. short. Yeah. No. Yeah, he definitely would have been too short. Matthew Broderick. Oh, my oh. gosh. You have got to be kidding me. Really? I'm Although he does, Batman. He does kill people. The same year as Glory, and you know he d- does have so he experience killing out. somebody in a car. Yeah. So Batman with PTSD—that'd be awesome. Right. But still, so far, no Karate Man. Yeah, no, no, no. What I would consider strong physical actors: Tom Cruise, probably the best one. Right, first off, big star. Too um, short. Little too short, but he's yeah. But they, they can. It's Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah he, they can he, he, he's somewhat known as an action and... star at this point in time. <laughs> Michael J. Fox. Wow. <laughs> His audition was a little shaky. <laughs> Harrison Ford, who would have just been way too old, I think, to play yeah, that yeah. at this point in time. Robert Downey Jr., which I cannot see him as a superhero. It just doesn't work. <laughs> so, but this is so, 2000. He's very young. At he's that very point. young and done. I mean, he might be almost a teenager, 20, 21 years old at that point. Yeah, he probably. Their budget would have just gone through the roof with the cocaine and everything else that he would want, the heroin. <laughs> Uh, Patrick Swayze, yeah, ah, Karate Man. All right, yeah, he they, could do that. If you want, you want someone to rip a heart, their throat out. Then yeah, first Karate Kate. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who put his stink onto the Batman series much later on. But I guess if you wanted someone, the, the brooding physical Batman, you can get it. Someone who doesn't actually talk. But yeah. <laughs> talk about messing with the origin story. I come from Austria. <laughs> What, what was the Joker yeah. doing in Germany? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Daniel Day-Lewis? All right, well. That, that boy, would be interesting. Yeah. That boy can bring it, no matter he, he what he does. He would have sold it. Yeah. He would, it would have been a great acting performance. I don't think he has a physical presence for it, but I also don't think Michael Keaton did, and audiences obviously bought that. It would be interesting to see his take uh, versus the uh, Jack Nicholson Joker, though. These were what were considered. I, that doesn't mean that they went and they were actually passed over. This is just what Warner Brothers considered. But remember, this was dark and gritty for nineteen for the nineteen yeah. eighties. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. But Michael Keaton's a comedy guy. He's Beetlejuice, and then they throw him into this, and this kind of redefines his career. He doesn't do comedy as much comedy from this point forward. But this jump started his action career. No, but he did a lot more dramatic roles from this point forward. I mean, uh, the same uh, the year before this, he does Clean and Sober for Warner Brothers, which I think is he mainly gets that because of this. But he went on to do like One Good Cop and oh god, I'm trying to remember the Extreme Measures where he plays the killer. Um, he doesn't do near prior to this. He's comedy, 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 comedy. He does nothing but. But then. After this, he does a lot of dramatic roles. Once producers saw him smash that vase and say, let's get nuts, they knew they had their guy. <laughs> yeah, but you Serious know what? Roles. That, that, that scene right there is about the only time you see a lot of emotion from Michael Keaton. And I also go, well, there's the Michael Keaton I've seen in every film I've ever seen before. This this kind of crazy comedic actor. And that's, that's about the only time he does anything in the film. That He has very blue eyes. We can see that through the bat mask. Yeah. That's about his his acting, and occasionally a raised eyebrow. Yeah. And then there was a laundry list of people considered for Kim Basinger's role, but her role was so unimportant, I don't even know that it matters. So so important that they brought her back for the sequel. Oh, wait, they didn't. I, well, and, and speaking of which, I, okay, she so Alfred, we got a comment on that, when Alfred brings her to the Batcave, right? So she now discovers that Bruce Wayne, whom she's banged on the first date, is Batman. And her reaction is, it's like no reaction, right? Yeah. I mean, I want to know, are, are we going to be together? <laughs> yeah. I, th- w- I, and that's not really her fault. It's just the story. It's the script. What in the world? I, I mean, not the, we're not even going to let Vicki Vale be astonished. 
No, no. I think George Lucas had a hand writing the script. It's from the Force uh, ro- romance. Okay. Well, that, okay, yeah. Well, one that, f- that, podcast that, without a Star Wars reference. Yeah. One f***ing podcast. You and that is go there. Nope. And, and ultimately, that you know, they had no chemistry, Keaton and Basinger. But there, there was no opportunity for that. Well, it was originally supposed to be Sean Young. Um, <laughs> oh, that would have done it. I which, mean, what man can resist Sean Young? Which I'm glad both Matt and Jason are not here because we'd have ten minutes on how shitty Sean Young is again. But she fell off a horse during rehearsals for some scene and broke some part of her body, so she had to be replaced. And they wanted Michelle Pfeiffer, who Michael Keaton was dating at the time. And he said no because I, I think that would be just... Because I went a little strange. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Well, and then that's it's funny how that comes full circle then because then Michelle Pfeiffer becomes Catwoman, and, I don't think, out, and Sean Young was pimping for that role. Yes, and Sean Young desperately wanted that role and basically ruined her career by Over dressing horse, up as Catwoman for falling falling off a horse. So there's a horse that we need to thank out there for ending Sean oh, Young's career because yes. this would have probably taken her well into the mid '90s if she'd been in this. You're right; she could have been Kim Basinger. Yeah, I got a question that took me out of the movie was what time period is this movie supposed to take place in certain time yeah, i get you I yeah know where you're going you had a bunch of um, other ex- uh, extras men extras wearing trench coats and fedoras which is very 1930s 1940s, 1940s. which Archi- is which is when the the comic book mm-hmm. or the pulp started right the architecture was very art deco which was also 1930s 1940s all the cops and bad guys were carrying around 38 special handguns 1930s 1940s the styling of the Batmobile with the fins and everything like that, and then the whole interior of the newsroom that Patrick and I kind of talked about earlier, that it just felt like it was a 1930s talkie. Um, But then you had a jet engine, you had the Batjet, 1980s cop cars, which I was watching on this, I'm like, what time period is this supposed to set set place in? See, I just thought that's what 1989 looked like, (laughs) as far as I can recall. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like anything changed either from those initial, uh, you know, from like Bruce's parents getting killed, even to the modern time in the movie. It's like everything was just stagnant between then. Yeah. It's a good point that, and I think this is kind of in a lot of Tim Burton films, even when they're not a period piece, they're a period piece, that they he kind of creates a universe into himself, which is one of the things I think is, is he is effective about. Visually, he's very interesting. Story-wise, he's weak. But visually, he creates... A pretty canvas to look at you know and it was very comic booky for its time and uh, you know in a dark and grim sort of way which is what the comic books reflected we can go dark and grim without having the confusing time period because it really took me out of the story when i was trying to figure out what time period this movie was supposed to take place in and dark and grim without casting billy d williams as <laughs> yeah. well let's talk about that because i mean we've touched on some of the you know we haven't touched on all the Batman. We don't need to. I mean, that's. No, I'm sure over time we may. But Harvey Dent is Billy D. Billy D. Williams is Harvey Dent, the mm-hmm. the district attorney who later becomes Tommy Lee Jones. Yes. And later becomes Aaron Ecker. Well, he switched from Democrat to Republican, and that's how he became okay. white. So. All right. Well, I mean, Billy D. Though that's a that's an interesting yeah. choice. He was on the Colt 45 party. Right. <laughs> He played the role well. But why do you think... He had three lines! Why do we He sold every one of them. (laughs) Why... I mean, why switch... Why do that big... Biggest switch, and not not just the race, but just the, just the, the persona. That they, the, the fact that because Billy D. Williams is cool. The, the fact that they cast him in Billy D. as as Harvey Dent, or the fact that they switched to Tommy Lee Jones. Does they switch to Tommy Lee Jones? Well, it's very simple. Who's not cool yeah. with a K? I mean, uh, the, he's a lot of you know, he's a lot of things. He's a good actor, but he's definitely not Billy D. Yeah, but Billy D. signed on for this role in a small role. Anticipating that he was going to be Two Face in a later film, he thought he'd get another action figure out of it too. Yeah, Orlando Calrissian. Yeah, so get a little. <laughs> but no, I think there's probably truth to that. Is that you know he he was anticipating a bigger role, and he he actually had in his contract that he would play Harvey Dent when he became Two Face, and by the time they got to Batman Forever. Tom Lee Jones is coming out of winning the Academy Award for The Fugitive. Fugitive. He'd been nominated for JFK. He'd been in all these Warner Brothers films. And he was a hot property. So they bought out Billy D. Williams' contract and said, here, we're paying you not to be in this movie, and recast it with Tommy Lee Jones, which, you know, I guess in the Batman films you can do that because they recast Batman multiple times. They recast pretty much everyone around them except for the old people. You know, Commissioner Gordon and Alfred. They kept those through that series. Yeah, but, you know, Denzel... 
has never been Batman. I mean, right? I mean, they would never cast a black actor as Batman. They wouldn't stoop to those depths. But but for a character like Harvey Dent, they can just change him from black to white. I, I see what's going on. No. It's Hollywood's racism. Once no, again. Hollywood's racism. See, a black man can play Harvey Dent, who eventually turns into a criminal. That's okay. That's right. believable for the audience. But black man can't be the hero. <laughs> so we have Christian Bale now. Yeah, a Welshman. You can't get more white than a Welshman. <laughs> Now, Patrick, you had an interesting, interesting uh, talking point. Um, you want to talk about the movie that you had was uh, the, the copy of the movie that you had entitled Batman, Movie of the Decade. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember when this came out on the television ads, best film of the decade was the quote, and I was going to look up the, the author, and I, the, you know, I'll, I'll post it on the website when we get there. But the best film, the mo- or no, it actually was the movie of the decade. Now we're talking 1980 to 1989, and this is yeah on, nothing came out. No, there's nothing. There's let's think of some of the crap that this beat out: Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Raging Bull, even a lot of the films we've reviewed so far. Uh, you know, this this is the ultimate film of the decade. Anybody got any opinion on that? Well, wait, it worked for marketing. I wonder if somebody tried it again in 1990. Clearly, <laughs> the film of the decade. Six months uh, later, no, this film is of the film of the decade. I don't know what's coming out. Well, you know, and I joked with Jay ahead of time that I'm going to call right now. Dark Knight Rises, film of the century, film of the century. I know it comes out next month, but film of the century. So, whoever wants to put that in their marketing, aid, they, they can put that attribute to Patrick at lunchtime yeah. movie review. Film of the century, Patrick. Who? Yeah. Well, I know we got 88 years to go, but I know this is going to be the best film ever. Yeah. Yeah, but that's what kind of essentially what it is. Granted, they're they're saying it in 1989, but is it? I mean, if Matt were here, it would, it, this is a movie that would insist upon itself. Is that what kind of saying? <laughs> well, it, uh, it even just, to the point where it's it's the self described movie of the decade. They got some hack to is throw this the, that in a review. Is this the best film of the year? No, no. Look who's talking so much better. I, I yeah, I know there was no Star Wars film for you to vote for that year, <laughs> Jay, but. But, I mean, just off the top of my head, I think Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was a better film. I think Lethal Weapon 2 was a better film. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, I know. So even at the yeah. same time and during that summer. Yeah, you Field of Dreams, Glory came out in 1989. Better films. Absolutely. What Was this yeah. the top grossing film of that decade? It was the top grossing film of that year. It was not the top grossing film of the decade. But it was pretty close. It's in the, it's in the top ten of the decade, I'm sure. I didn't look yeah, at probably specifically, with, but with I know Empire Raiders and made ET. more, and Empire and ET all made more than it. So, but yeah, that's a that's a lot of two fifty. Wow! And all those movies that you just at that time, and all those movies you just rattled off, people go back and watch. I don't really know of anyone going back. I want to go back and watch the nineteen eighties Batman movie. Yeah, I've watched it again, and I don't even like it. So, and I I I'll stop and watch it when it comes on. So, it's part of my little set. I have all the Batman movies. But I'm I'm I grew up a comic. But certainly, okay. So we're now we're almost 25 years after this has come out, and and if it is even the movie of the year, let alone movie of the decade, as you mentioned, are we as nostalgic, or not just we, but just in general, are people as nostalgic about this movie as they would be about E.T. or Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Star Wars movies, the no. original three? Of I course mean, not, right? I mean, like the Indiana Jones movies have so much. Star Wars are just in their own world. I mm-hmm. mean, compared to this, this is... And pretty much everything that Spielberg did well, during that time. This is an amusement, is what it is. Well, yeah, but also in defense of the film, and I don't really care for the film, we're not getting to that yet, but this film, this character, has been done better after this, yeah. and in a much better way. That I think this is the seminal work of Batman, the storytelling of Batman, up until Batman Begins and The Dark Knight come out in the 2000s. And... If you don't have those two films come out, I think people would romanticize this film a little bit more. That they they attribute it. This is the definitive version of the Joker. This is the definitive version of Batman because the, the you know they they're perceived as getting weaker as the series. This series of Batman films progress, and I think that it's only through based off Heath Ledger's performance that we look back at Jack Nicholson's and go, hey, it wasn't that good, um, because we have a different version now that it seems to be. In, to be more interesting. Well, we had an actor that played more than one note. And, no. I, and I, I, look, I'm, I'm being a little facetious about Jack Nichols, and I, I agree that he steals the movie. I think it's an intentional steal. It's not something that he, he does on his own. It's, that was, the movie was his movie. 
in his character, but he really only hits one note on that. And that is kind of this ironic, not hysterical, but ironic guy that, that, you know, is crazy, but he's not going to hit on all the notes that Heath Ledger hit on. Well, but, and part of that is probably the writing and the fact that Tim Burton is a shitty storyteller. He just doesn't care. <laughs> it's about, about the looks. It's the artifice. You well, know? What kind of costumes can we put him in and what kind of art direction? And I'm going to bring so up a, a point that Matt brought up um, who desperately wanted to be a part of this podcast that Jack Nicholson's interpretation of the Joker is not that different from Cesar Romero's interpretation it's, during the 1960s. Yeah, that's very true. That, and, and I Almost think, like a refined crazy. Yeah, and I remember when this came out that they were saying, oh, this is so different. This is you know, so drastically different. And I even perceived it that way at the time. And now, it, it, looking back in hindsight, I'm going, it really isn't that different. He's, he's over the top. He's cheesy. He's giggling like an idiot. There's not really that much sinister about him. He's killing people, but he, mm-hmm. he, he's, not, he's not frightening the way that Heath Ledger's character, right. character is in The Dark Knight. So. And let's talk very briefly. This did win one Oscar, and it won it for art direction. Right. And, and when the movie came out, and I think even to this day, people remark about the, the, the look of the film, uh, the photography, the set design. Um, and that's obviously, as, as Patrick had, had talked about, that's Tim Burton's thing. He's an art guy. No, he's very much an art guy. He, you know, whether it be an animated film or his live action film, but, they're always interesting to look at. But in the prism of 2012, do we still like the looks of this movie? I do. Okay. I like the looks of this movie. <laughs> um, I think it's still visually engaging, and um, I think it, it doesn't feel dated to me as far as just a visual thing. And I agree with it. It doesn't feel dated. I. I I know it's intentionally dark. There's no doubt about it. That was Burton's thing to make Gotham this decaying city, and I get that, and and the dark night, and you know the Batcave and everything. But it's almost too dark for for my taste. And I remember in the theater, you know, as a kid, thinking the same thing. Boy, this is a dark movie. Not dark in theme or in tone, but dark in in just lack of absence of light. Well, it, you know, and, and I think it's a little too dark for my taste, and I and I, I think he could have achieved exactly what he wanted to achieve by by still where we'd actually be able to see something, including the action scenes, which are terribly photographed. I think. Yeah, I was going to say when we were watching the movie to, in preparation of the podcast, Greg, you mentioned that uh, we couldn't really tell what was going on because it was just so dark on screen that it's like we don't know who's fighting who or what's going on. Right. And maybe part of that is the limitations of Michael Keaton as an action figure in that. <laughs> and, no, and it could be. And, and whatever stunt doubles they, they had to use, uh, they just wanted to keep it dark for a reason. I, I don't know, but I, I, I do agree. I, I can understand why it won the Oscar at the time, because when you, when you put this up against the other movies, I, I get that it, it was very visually engaging. But now I don't, I don't know that it stands the test of time, although I, I agree it's not dated. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, the script. It seems like the writers were just incredibly lazy in certain points. Um, <laughs> I, I've gotten my notes here that uh, there were a couple uh, times that they just kind of wrote themselves in a corner and they needed to uh, go with uh, Deus Ex Machina to get themselves out of it. With the balloons filled with the gas towards the end of the movie, how the Joker was starting to gas the citizens of Gotham, Batman comes out with a bat jet for whatever reason, and the Batjet had a cow catcher that had a knife that moved it all away. It's just like we they, the, the script writers wrote themselves in a corner and we needed some sort of magic bullet or something like that just to get themselves out of the, out of the corner mm-hmm. they wrote themselves in. No. When Eckhart is shot at the beginning, there were several things that took me completely out of the film. That was one of them with the balloon cutter. You can see uh, Jack Napier standing there. He's pointing his gun. They know he's there. His henchman is saying, let's go. And that fat cop is just standing there, like, taking in the view. Like, mm-hmm. like, like who wrote this? Like, yeah. how am I supposed to, to buy into this? I can't remember any other ones that stood out. Oh, I have one that bothered me the first time I saw it and still bothers me to this day. When they get to the top of the cathedral, he calls for help. You know, pick me up here with, you know, basically a helicopter. Uh, I'll be at the top of the cathedral. Batman gets to the top, and all of a sudden, there's henchmen everywhere fighting Batman. Where, yeah, they where the fuck did they come from? Yeah. Because the helicopter doesn't come for a couple and, and, seconds. And, and, and that cathedral is like 50 stories high. Yeah. It's, it's the 
I, I mean, it, it's the largest cathedral in the world. Right? There's uh, that's crazy. How high? Where do they? How exactly? How do they get there? Yeah, and, and it, Batman is just following him up the top of it, going up the same steps. Batman, you're retarded. He's laying a trap. Knock it off. Don't go in that room, Batman. Don't do it. Well, plus the fact that, hey, don't you have, like, a batarang or something? That, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I saw you use it, like, once mm -hmm. or twice before yeah. in the film. Why aren't you using it now? But that always bothered me. It's like, what, you had to have Batman fighting someone, and you couldn't figure out a creative way to explain why there's suddenly henchmen at the top of the cathedral, which also the cathedral itself always bothered me. Like, oh, yeah, that's a good Yeah, why not just use the balloons again? They got up there with the balloons. Or, or, you know. The other thing I was thinking is Batman's just come out of a couple sequences where he blew up a factory full of people shot up several floats, blew them up with the Joker's people in it, and then he gets to the top of the cathedral and all of a sudden it's time to, like, duke it out. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you got yeah, guns he goes on back your plane, to the, you got guns on your car, pack some heat, man, save yourself some trouble if you're willing. You get a knife at least. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, in, in the comics, Batman never used... he's a karate man. Yeah. <laughs> in the comics, Batman never uses a gun because he, he's against killing, you know, and that's and also because that's how his parents are killed. But obviously this guy has no predilection about killing anyone so why don't you have the bat gun on there and just shoot the guy boom he's dead pulling a seth green there but mm -hmm. movie over let's take a you know walk down the steps and get the hell out of here vicky let's try so. to enjoy this festival <laughs> yes. yeah, well, yeah and unlike, hey look let's go pick up some free money oh wait i'm bruce wayne i don't need any more money unlike offing james bond which i mean james bond has earned a good death right <laughs> at least but these goons the joke joker's goons come on it Wipe them out. Yeah, it was. Line a, them up, knock them down. <laughs> uh, let's go around and wrap this one up. Matthew, what did you think of it? Does not stand the test of time. That that's it. You're just going to go to that. <laughs> no, it doesn't stand the test of time. I, visually, did you see it back or around the time it came out? Yeah, I mean, I was a kid, and as a kid, I loved it. We were all kids. That's the whole point of this. I was pretty small. <laughs> I was probably you know six or seven years old when I first saw this, and and I thought it was fantastic. But you know, kids are stupid. Yeah, I thought Taco Bell was fantastic back then, too. <laughs> exactly. And I've learned my lesson the so, hard way. So, no, doesn't stand the test of time. Visually, I still like it, but the script is awful. It's just, it's just awful. Yeah. Jake? I did see this when it came out uh, back in the day. Um, I liked it back then. Um, a friend of mine even had the Bat Jet, which I thought was one of the coolest toys ever. Um, but looking back on it now, after seeing all the new Batman movies that uh, come out uh, in the 2000s and in this decade, it just does not stand the test of time. Because um, Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, is supposed to be gritty, uh, real, and it just looks like a 1960s comic book Adam West type compared to today's Batman movies. But without the fun. Yeah, there's no dancing. Right. Yeah. Well. It's, Camp. I mean, it, 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 like you said, it's visually it's this this comic book camp, but absent the fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a good good way to. Yeah, play. there's no tongue in cheek. I'm glad to I what thought they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, uh, uh, but uh, that's yeah, it does not stand the test of time. Greg, I agree, and I I remember seeing this and being underwhelmed, but I I, I was entertained, and that's more than I can say now. I I, I the the movie has no story. Very weak performances, considering what we would hope for these, you know, larger than life characters, and the art direction, the Oscar-winning art direction, doesn't make up for it. So, does not stand the test of time. All right. Um, so my uh, my take on this, I did not like this film in 1989. Um, I was not a big Batman fan. I was more of a Spider-Man fan, although he didn't have a cool movie series at the time. Yeah, yeah. Peter Parker's an everyman. It's kind of hard to. To identify with the the guy the who has yeah the billionaires yeah. yes I want a plane but I want a cow catcher yeah. that cuts things on the front in case I ever have that sole issue of taking something out and uh, he's not as cool as Tony Stark no he's not yeah. although I would Iron Man would probably be cooler than yeah. Batman yeah and he can be Iron Man you know like I am Tony right. Stark and I'm Iron Man yeah. So. You know, the, the I, I got kind of repulsed by the, the hype of this film because nothing I saw in the previews, nothing I saw was reading about it really registered this was going to be a great film. And then I saw it, and I was as, kind of what Greg said. I was underwhelmed with it. It was okay. I liked Nicholson at the time in it, although I don't like Nicholson now because of Heath Ledger's performance. But I didn't think it was that great a film, and I'm still surprised that it did as well as it did. And it was as beloved as well as it was because – I actually liked Batman Returns. I enjoyed that film better. I thought there was more character development. I thought the interactions between Bruce Wayne and Alfred 
and even the Michelle Pfeiffer character are more real and there's some character in that film compared to this film the rest of them are total trash <laughs> but mm -hmm. you know I did I didn't think this was the highlight of this series but obviously it was well beloved for a long time and probably in the top probably the top 50 films of all time as far as box office grows so no I didn't think it was that good at the time and I definitely don't think it stands the test of time it's been done far better by Christopher Nolan and his incarnation of the film and uh, without a doubt even though Dark Knight Rises is supposed to be the last one well probably there'll probably be another version like this and hopefully it's more like Christopher Nolan's version and not Joel Schumacher's or Tim Burton's version maybe they'll give Adam West another chance they'll do the Dark Knight Returns with the older Batman and he'll come back <laughs> Can somebody tell me what kind of a world we live in where a man dressed up as a bat gets all of my press? This town needs an enema. Uh, so that's it for this week's film. Uh, join us next week as we review another film from our childhood. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or follow us on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. Keep up to date on films that we're going to be reviewing, additional video extras from the films that we do review, as well as news and information about many other 80s-related films, remakes, sequels, prequels, plays, whatever it may be. Uh, if you want to help out the podcast, uh, go to the website and click on the Amazon link. And if you're going to purchase something through Amazon, go through our website first. Every time you make a purchase, a small percentage of that goes to us. Uh, you don't pay us anything extra. Amazon pays it. So it doesn't cost you anything and it helps us keep up uh, with some of the costs of maintaining the website as well as the podcast. And finally, obviously, we're talking about Batman. Uh, the Dark Knight Rises comes out in July, late July. Pre-sale tickets for that film have already gone on sale through Fandango. Lunchtime Movie Review is partnered with Fandango to help promote the film and also pre-sell tickets. So if you're interested in seeing The Dark Knight Rises and you don't want to wait in line to get tickets, you can buy your tickets in advance and you can start buying them now. Just go to lunchtimemoviereview.com, click on the Fandango link, which is at the top of every single page on our website, and purchase your tickets. we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. This podcast is not endorsed by Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Batman, all names and sounds of Batman characters, and any other Batman-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Warner Brothers Home Entertainment or their respective trademark and or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.